0: Hey everybody, it's good to see you. Merry Christmas to you. Glad you guys are with us. So uh, I have a daughter. I know some of you are new. I have a daughter. Uh, she's almost two years old. Uh, we have a uh, almost daily tradition when I get home from work. I get home, I walk home. Uh, she's in a great mood because she just woke up from a three-hour afternoon nap. Um, which I'm not sure why we ever phase those out as adults. Um, we would all be in great moods if we had three-hour naps on a daily basis. But she's just woken up, and uh, she starts saying to me, walk, 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 because that's what we do. We go for a walk when I get home, and we walk by uh, the local coffee shop and grab a cookie, and then we walk by the bank, and they give her a lollipop so you can start seeing like, why she enjoys this walk so much. And uh, then we end up at our uh, neighborhood uh, playground. Now, uh, I'm not sure how many of you are parents or you know babysit and take kids to the playground, but I feel like urban playgrounds are sort of uniquely interesting. Uh, They're just kind of uniquely crazy. You got to make sure like there's no broken glass on the swing set. You got to make sure that there's not like a person in the tube slide before you send your kid down the tube slide. And uh, the really interesting thing is I feel like um, maybe it's just our park in particular. We are on the main thoroughfare, the road that goes right by this park by our house. We're on the main thoroughfare where emergency and rescue vehicles go in order to get to issues in downtown. Now, it's really interesting uh, for my daughter. She's already sort of made this realization that the magnitude of the response that she sees is a clear representation of the magnitude of the problem that this response is headed towards. The magnitude of the response is a clear reflection of the magnitude of the problem. I'll give you an example of this. So uh, we're always playing. I can't remember a day where we haven't seen like a, a fire truck or an ambulance or, or a cop car racing down uh, this street. And when it's just one, when it's just sort of like one fire truck going down this street, uh, my daughter's not scared. She's actually quite entertained. She starts like laughing and clapping and like fire truck, fire truck. And she thinks it's like the coolest thing in the world. But, but about two or three weeks ago or so, we're there playing. And uh, all of a sudden, we see a fire truck followed by a cop car, followed by an ambulance. And she's not like She's not happy whatsoever. She's super overwhelmed, and she's like saying, "Hold you, hold you," which is what she says. Like, I want to hold you. That's the kind of the way that she says it. Isn't that? Isn't that cute? That's absolutely. That's like you've gotten your your. You don't give money to come here, but you got your money's worth uh, already. Hearing that cute little anecdote uh, right there, you know, and it's really interesting. Like, we this isn't like that complex for us. Maybe the same way for you. Let's imagine, for example, you're on Colfax. And all of a sudden, you hear sirens, and you see a cop car in your rearview mirror. I mean, chances are you're not thinking anything of that. You're just pulling over. You're going to play on your phone for a few minutes until that cop car passes by, and you just kind of get on with your day. But just kind of, like, imagine with me if you're sitting on Colfax, and you hear sirens, and you look in your rearview mirror, and you see a cop car followed by a fire truck, followed by an ambulance, followed by, uh, I don't know, like, uh, a SWAT vehicle f- full of guys in riot gear, followed by a helicopter, followed by a tank. Like, you wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, it's probably no big deal. So you'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, wherever they're going is really, really bad, because you know this principle, too. Like, the magnitude of the response is a clear reflection of the magnitude of the problem. Now, here's the reason I say all this on the front end is, you know, we're trying to make sense of Christmas uh, through the Advent se- this season and through kind of understanding studying the Psalms. And we said one of our our aims in all of this is trying to to really get beyond the over-romanticized cultural view of Christmas to really have a biblical perspective of Christmas. And, And I saw somebody this week say something really, really insightful. He said that Christmas is the ultimate rescue mission that Christmas is the ultimate rescue mission. It's really interesting if you think of it that way. Like, if Christmas is the ultimate rescue mission, and if it's true that the magnitude of the response is a clear reflection of the magnitude of the problem, like, what is being proclaimed when God himself has to be in the manger? Like, isn't that interesting that, like, when we think about what we celebrate at Christmas, it's not God sending... A little bit of wisdom, so that we can be a little bit smarter and make better life choices. He's not sending a little bit of more rules, so that you could like be more disciplined and know how you should live. He's not sending like a a college professor who can give you a little bit more insight. You know, okay, finally now I can actualize my potential and live the life that I was supposed to live. No, like, God himself had to be in the manger. It, it's a lot like looking in the rearview mirror and, and not seeing just a single fire truck, but seeing, like, a row of tanks headed towards the scene of the crime. Like, why is that? Like, why is the problem so serious? Why is the response so serious? And here's sort of my, my, uh, my idea for tonight. It's like Psalm 23, when properly understood through the lens of Christmas, really reveals to us who we are and who God is and why the response is so serious and why the need is so serious as well, okay? So we're going to look at this. It's real simple. All we're going to get is a clear, uh, clear glimpse into who we are as people, and then we're going to see a clear glimpse into who God is uh, as the one who rescues us. We'll start with kind of getting a glimpse uh, into us. Look at verse 1. It's really interesting. David is the author of this psalm. David was the great, 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 give or take a few greats, grandfather of Jesus Christ, who we celebrate at Christmas. He's writing this. It's the same guy that wrote Uh, Psalm 22 that we studied last week. And it's really interesting. David picks up on this theme we've been discussing, but he chooses a different analogy. He doesn't use a real violent rescue, ambulance, fire truck analogy. He instead chooses the analogy of a shepherd and sheep. Look at verse 1. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, it's really interesting that David chooses this shepherd sheep analogy. The reason why is first, Because David spent a significant amount amount of his life working as a shepherd. And so he knew this really, really well, and he would have known, like, what exactly all of this entailed. And so it's really interesting. Like, here's kind of the overarching analogy he's giving is, like, if you really want to understand who God is, you need to see him as shepherd. If you really want to understand who you are, you need to see yourself as a sheep. Now the second interesting thing is because David had spent a considerable amount of his time, of his life working the profession of being a shepherd. He knew exactly what he was saying when he gives this analogy. For a lot of us in this room, um, we have not worked as shepherded shepherds before. Um, For a lot of us in this room, when we hear this, it just sort of like, it just sort of is a kind of a vague feel-good, the Lord is my shepherd. It's like the type of feel-good stuff we put on coffee mugs, or we see and put on inspirational cat posters and hang in our offices, right? Like, the Lord is my shepherd, that makes me feel so good. Your grandma, if she's a Christian, might have shared that meme on Facebook that says, the Lord is my shepherd shepherd. But David had no sort of overly romanticized visions of what it is he's communicating here. He knew exactly what he was saying because he had spent a considerable amount of his life working as a shepherd. Now, for us who do life in urban Denver, for us, I don't think, I don't know if any of you worked as shepherds. I don't know all of you in this room. But but for me, at least, it's kind of like, how do I even teach on this? Um, You know, I grew up in the suburbs and I moved to the city. Never spent any period of my life shepherding. What do we do? Well, here's what we do. Thank you, Jesus, for the internet. Um, We got to learn a lot about the shepherding sheep relationship this past week thanks to the internet. Um, I kind of went down an internet black hole learning about this. Like, if I'm just sort of vulnerable with you in a second, um, like for me, I was kind of like, yeah, let's just sort of capture this. Let's find a farmer who gives like a quote and we'll read the quote and you guys be like, oh, okay, that like makes sense and we'll move beyond that. But this relationship, the shepherd to sheep relationship is like the most fascinating relationship maybe I've ever studied. I just spent hours, I just lost myself. People at the coffee shop probably looking over my shoulder and like, what does that guy do for a living that he can just like watch YouTube videos of lambs for hours upon <laughs> hours? It's like, don't judge me, bro. Okay, you're here too. Like, just, let's just, yeah, anyways. And so I'm really, really excited to kind of like dive into this with you. In particular, I'm going to kind of tell you about three things that sheep, like if David's saying we are sheep, that a sheep needs from a shepherd. He's him kind of helping us understand who we are. Now, the first is this, as a sheep needs a shepherd. The first truth that we learn about ourselves through this relationship is a sheep needs needs a shepherd. The sheep-shepherd relationship is a necessary one. There are some animals that are totally totally okay being autonomous and independent. Um, You know, you might go hiking in Colorado. We love going hiking and you might have stumbled across a wild goat before. You might have stumbled across a wild bear before. But here's what I know you haven't stumbled across. You never stumbled across a wild sheep before, right? You haven't been hiking a 14er and this sheep jumps out of nowhere and you're like, whoa! And it's like, bah! And you're like, whoa! You're like, like, no, you've never experienced that whatsoever because a wild sheep, a a sheep separated from its shepherd is soon to be a slaughtered sheep through one means or another. Just to sort of give you uh, an example of this, about 10 years ago in Istanbul, uh, there was a a group of sheep that got separated from its shepherd. It didn't even sort of get separated from its shepherd as much as the shepherd decided to take a break. He decided to take a break for breakfast. That's totally understandable. And sheep need a shepherd. And what happened is apparently one of the sheep sort of tries to take control of everything that's going on here, and it just sort of starts leading the flock, and it ultimately leads the flock astray over a cliff, and this is because sheep just tend to follow one another. They just all proceed one after another to jump off the edge of this cliff. I'll, I'll read you this news excerpt. Uh, it says, First, one sheep jumped to its death. Then, tun- stunned Turkish shepherds, who had left the, f- the herd to graze while they had had breakfast, watched as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff, Turkish media reported. Now, in the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile, uh, the newspaper said. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall got more (laughs) cushioned. (laughs) The estimated loss to families in the town, uh, located in the Van province of eastern Turkey, tops $100,000, a significant amount of money in a country where the average GDP, gross domestic product per head, is around $2,700. Here's the point, like, when David says we're sheep, it's not meant to be a compliment, okay? Like, you understand this? Like, he totally understood, so the intelligence level and the independence capacity— of a sheep, and for a lot of us, particularly in this city that sort of uh, idolizes our independence and our autonomy more than anything else, like David comes and says a sheep without a shepherd like is like me without my God, and just as a sheep without a shepherd is headed towards the slaughter so me without the guiding sovereign, reigning hand of the Lord over my life so I'm headed towards death and destruction as well. He's taking a direct shot right out of the gate of being like this is not, this is a clear reflection of what you need. You are not going to be fine if you are on your own. Now, second, a sheep needs a shepherd who is willing to take on its mess. A sheep needs a shepherd who's willing to take on its mess. Now, it's funny, for me, when I sort of picture, before I did any sort of research, when I pictured the job of a shepherd, it seemed like a really ideal job. For me, I was kind of like, man, like, you probably get to wear whatever you want to wear to work. Um, you probably, like, sit under a tree in the shade. You sleep for 12 hours. The other 12 hours, you, like, play a ukulele and write poetry and just stare at the grass. I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. Like, how do you sign up for that? But then you do some research about what does the job actually entail, and it's a deeply, deeply involved, messy, costly job. It's, it's interesting, actually, now um, you can actually experience one-day shepherding immersion courses and experiences. So um, if you want a last-minute Christmas idea, there you go. Like, you get to shepherd for a day. Uh, but here's sort of the warning that goes alongside this. I was reading people who were kind of on the other side of having these experiences, and for all of them, they kind of said, you know, going into it, I thought it was going to be, yeah, I'm like laying around, and when I want to do something, I'll like cuddle a lamb for 30 minutes, and when I get tired of that, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go lay down again. And they're like, no, like everybody said the exact same thing. It was incredibly costly. It was incredibly incredibly messy. It it was way, way more involved and harder than I thought. Uh, uh, A writer for the newspaper, The Guardian, uh, she said this. She said about her experience, within an hour, I looked like Wurzel Gummidge. Now, let me pause there. Probably none of you know who Wurzel Gummidge is because you didn't grow up in uh, Great Britain, but can we bring up a picture of Wurzel Gummidge? Uh, This is Wurzel Gummidge. Um, He was a British children's uh, fictional character, he's terrifying. He will forever live in my nightmares as well as the nightmares of British children everywhere. But she's saying, okay, this is, this, this is what I looked like uh, after an hour of working with the sheep. Uh, she goes on to write, my overalls are covered in amniotic fluid, sheep droppings, and all sorts of other unidentifiable slime that act as a magnet for hay and straw. And it was really interesting. Everybody had the exact same story, saying again, and again, and again, the work was so messy I wanted to throw up. The work was so hard I felt like my back was going to break. And so it's a really interesting declaration that David is saying, God is a shepherd and I am a sheep. David, on the front end, is confessing his need. He's confessing his brokenness. He's confessing his messiness. And he's confessing the goodness of a God who will fully embrace and take that mess onto himself. Almost to sort of flip the analogy, like you'll hear a lot of sort of shepherd sheep language in this, but also a lot of father-child uh, language in this as well. It's kind of like, again, I'm not sure how many of you have kids or have babysat kids or had any sort of exposure to kids whatsoever, but like one of the common themes with kids is like they are just gross a lot of times. Like even like my sweet almost two-year-old daughter, like she does the cutest things in the world, but sometimes I'm like, oh, gross. Like, don't, ugh. like I'll just give you an example. Like a few weeks ago, um, she like vomited all over herself she's going to listen to this when she's like 16 and kill me so i'm sorry hannah but um she puked all over herself now if you've ever had a small child puke all over themselves you know what you want to do in order to sort of make things better is you sort of want to grab them from a distance like if i could almost like hold their pinky toe like this and carry them to the bath and then turn on the shower and then okay not getting this on myself but like for any of you are parents you know like that does not work whatsoever And Hannah, I mean, I just remember as soon as she puked all over herself, she pukes, and then she looks at me, and she's like, hold you, hold you, hold you. And it just gets louder and sadder and sadder and sadder. And you're like, all right, if I'm going to be a good parent, i got to do this. Right? Like, let's do this. Come on. Come on. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Get it all over me. Get the mess all over me. That's, That's what it means to be a good parent. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. And David is declaring, we are a mess, and we need a shepherd who is willing to fully take that mess on himself, and we do. It's one of the greatest truths and implications of Christmas that God himself is in the manger in human form taking on the mess of what it means to be man or woman. And thank God we have a shepherd who's like that. Third and finally, a sheep needs a shepherd for the entirety of its life. Sheep needs a shepherd for the entirety of its life. It's really interesting. This is where the, the shepherding analogy is much more helpful than maybe even the analogy of God being like a father to a child. And there's a, an author who expands upon this. Here's what he writes. He says, there's one important distinction between the metaphor of father and that of shepherd in terms of us understanding who God is. Children grow up and become less dependent on their earthly fathers, though the relationship continues. Sheep, on the other hand, are always completely dependent on their shepherd. They never outgrow their need for the shepherd to care for them, feed them, lead them, and protect them. The shepherd cares for the newborn lambs and is still there when the sheep grow old and weak. Therefore, the imagery of shepherd sheep captures the comprehensive sovereignty of the shepherd over the sheep and the need of the sheep to yield completely to his care. The good news is that the Lord uses his sovereign power for the well-being of his flock. What's being declared here in this moment where David says, Who am I? I am a sheep who is God. He is a shepherd, is a confession of our desperate need of our helplessness, of our propensity to make really bad decisions, of our propensity to go astray. And when we go astray, for things to go really, really bad and for us to jump off of cliffs, and our desperate, desperate need for there to be a shepherd who restores us and corrects us and returns us back to the fold and pursues us and gets into our mess. And he's saying, that's who I am. And thank God, like that's who God is as well. And particularly when we interpret this psalm through the lens of, of Christmas, it's unbelievably it's just it's just such, such good news. Because think about it again. Like what God sends to the manger is not some politician who like helps us as a society be like a little bit more well-organized and well-run. A lot of people in culture say, like, that's all you need. Like, if we would just get the right person in office, then everybody would happy and everything everybody would be happy and everything would go the way that it should. Now, God puts Himself in the manger. And in the moment that God puts himself in the manger, it is a leveling of all pride. It is a level of all self-conceit. It is a level of all of our narcissism. It is an end to you believing that you're better than anybody else because God is saying the most desperate measures have to be taken if we are going to be restored back to him and restored back to some sort of health, both in this life and in the life to come. Christmas is the death of pride. Christmas is the death of arrogance because of the seriousness of the rescue that is needed. So David tells us, like, this is who we are. We are sheep, and it's not a very flattering picture, but it's a very realistic one. And he says, okay, well, here is who the shepherd is as well. And he tells us three things about God. First, God is, he is the shepherd who allows us to lie down. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, he, that being God, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, it's really interesting. I've heard that line, he, he makes me lie down uh, in green pastures. I, I feel like I've seen that hundreds of times. Again, mostly in like really cheesy, semi-motivational posters on like a bulletin board somewhere. It's like, what does that mean? Right? Like, how do we just not get vaguely inspired by this? But, like, what in the world does this mean? Now, I shared this a couple weeks ago. We just got back from a trip uh, in the United Kingdom, and in that trip, uh, we got to rent a car. Uh, I drove the width of Scotland. I drove the length of England. Very, very stressful driving on the other side of the road, but I will not chase that tangent whatsoever. I'm alive, and that's proof enough that God exists if you're a doubter in this room, okay? It was really, really stressful, but I digress. Um, So, on this drive... I don't know if you've ever driven through the Scottish or the English countryside, but there's one thing you see in the Scottish and English countryside more than anything else. Sheep. There are so many sheep on these rolling hills in Scotland and in England, and it's just herd of sheep after herd of sheep after herd of sheep. Now, it's really interesting. I I probably thought about this. I think I saw maybe around 10,000 sheep. I didn't count, but that was sort of my, my estimate of how many sheep I saw. And I I was thinking about this, like I knew I was going to teach this in a couple of weeks, and it was really interesting, Despite of all of these sheep that I saw, I didn't see a single sheep ever lying down. In fact, what I typically saw were sheep, it's really rainy and windy there, and so all the sheep are sort of lined up as close as possible to the walls that separate one farm from the other in order to receive some sort of shelter from the storm. Now it's like, well, why are no sheep lying down? Like, why does David talk about... God being a shepherd who makes us able to lie down. Well, you know, again, thank you, Jesus, for the internet. What I learned is that, like, it's almost impossible to get a sheep to lie down. Like, a sheep has to feel perfectly safe, perfectly content, perfectly cared for, perfectly well fed by a shepherd in order for it to lie down in a field. And it's a really interesting declaration that David is making here in this moment because what he's saying about the rescue of God is it's not just deeply dramatic or deeply serious in nature, But it's also a rescue that's deeply comforting as well. Now, here's why this is really interesting to me. I was thinking about this this past week because when I tend to think of a really dramatic rescue, I tend to think that rescue is deeply violent in nature. You know, for example, like I think about the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. Um, I don't know if you ever saw this, but like it's super dramatic, right? Like if you have ever seen this movie, I'm not endorsing it, you know, like as a pastor. I'm just saying if you've seen it... um, you know, it's, it's deeply dramatic in terms of the nature of the rescue, but it's, like, deeply violent as well. Bruce Willis is just leaving, like, a pile of bodies in his wake as he's, you know, firing off bullets. And you're like, man, like, you should just fired off, like, a thousand bullets. Like, who knows who that's going to hit? You know, that's, like, that's not a very wise thing to do. And, and that's the way we tend to think about this. These, these deeply, deeply serious rescues are also deeply violent rescues as well, and that doesn't bring images of much comfort. But David is saying, like, the the nature of the rescue from God is such that it is comforting, even though it's serious. Like, how in the world could that ever be possible? Well, because every rescue is deeply violent. But what makes the rescue of God unique in nature is God steps out of heaven into history, born a baby, becomes a man, dies at a cross. And at that cross, he takes that violence on himself rather than inflicting upon others. And when that is properly understood, the God is the God who enters into the most violent rescue in all of human history, but he takes that violence and he does not inflict it upon his enemies, but instead inflicts it upon himself for the good of his enemies. That becomes a lens through which we can interpret our lives and as a consequence, like we have the ability to lie down. Like there's, there's a lot of us in this room, whether it might be figuratively, it might be literally, have the inability to lie down. Down, And it might mean, like, when you're working, you're not able to, like, turn off your brain from whatever it is that you're anxious about. It might be that you literally, at night, cannot fall asleep for hours upon hours because you're so caught up in something. And what David is saying to you, if that's you, and he's saying to me, since that is me, is, like, the nature of the rescue is such that you can lie down. My anxious friend, my stressed out friend, my friend worried about money, because it's December, right, and it's Christmas, and you've all of a sudden got like hundreds of dollars of unbudgeted expenses, all in the name of gift giving, and you're like not particularly psyched about that, and you're struggling through that, and you're working through how do I make ends meet. My friend who is trying to like project this image, like some of you in this room, you're trying to project this image, like I've got it all together and come over to my house and look how everything is perfectly clean and this could be like a a Martha Stewart catalog and look how well my family has behaved and look at how good I am and look how happy I am and it's like you're like a duck, you're like totally calm above the water but you're churning just to stay afloat, like whatever it is you might be going through. I would push you, I would push you to understand God as the one who loves you to the degree that he makes you able to lie down? Are you worried about money? Like God is the one who does not just provide for our basic daily needs, although he does that and has years of faithfulness in your life proving that. But he's the one who would even offer up his own self in your place for your sins. What more could he give us? Are you anxious because it's Christmas and you're trying to hold it all together or you're worried about somebody or, you know, what is that person going to do? Or this is this a person who's far away from me and are they going to be cared for? Well, this Christmas, like God has shown himself as the good and perfect shepherd. And before you were a shepherd of another, you were first and foremost a sheep. And his faithfulness extends to that person as much as it extends to you. And you can rest and you can lie down and you can take off the weight of expectation that you're the person who sort of upholds the universe together because you were a sheep under the care of a good shepherd. All right, that's the first one. Second, he's the shepherd who pursues us when we wander away. He's the shepherd who pursues us when we wander away. He restores my soul. This is verse three. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And look at verse four. He jumps down and he says, uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is really interesting. Now, The reason this is so interesting from David is he's telling us that sheep have a propensity to wander. Now, it's interesting, we we said this earlier, uh, that when sheep wander away from the flock, it leads to really, really bad things. Sometimes they jump off cliffs, as we talked about earlier uh, tonight. Uh, But a lot of times, the most likely thing that that will happen to a sheep when it wanders away is a sheep will become cast. It'll actually flip upside down. We have a picture uh, of this sheep Yeah, there he is uh, right there. Now, um, what happens, here's kind of like what happens with this. So the sheep wanders away and you kind of do the math in your head. Sheep have like real big bodies, particularly uh, when they haven't been sheared uh, for a while. That that wool weighs a whole lot. They have itty-bitty legs and a lot of them exist on rocky and unlevel terrain. So do the math, big body, itty-bitty legs, rocky terrain, you're gonna fall and it's like, not just I've fallen, but I've fallen and I can't get up. Now, um, a lot of you are looking at this and you're like, man, that looks comfortable. Like, I sleep like that, right? Now, the interesting thing is that if a sheep is cast like this, even for a few hours, it, cha- it, it faces the chance of, uh, of dying. Uh, either by natural causes or a wolf, like, walking upon this. Can you imagine being a wolf, like, walking upon this and being like, like Jehovah Jireh, like, the Lord provides, like, thank you, I believe in Jesus, like, thank you so much. Like, look at that. So like, what a shepherd would be doing, a shepherd would be perpetually counting its sheep and making sure that a sheep hasn't wandered away from the flock because a sheep separated from its shepherd is headed towards the slaughter. Now hold all of that in your mind when you think about it. Can we leave this picture up here for a second? Actually, no, I'm going to read the text and we'll jump back to this. Um, Sorry, attorney. Um, But Jesus, like, he picks up on this metaphor. Like, hold all of that in your mind as you think about something that's pretty well known that Jesus says. Um, Jesus says this. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country to go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And look at verse five. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, can we bring that picture back up? Here's what Jesus is saying, is that this is us apart from him. And a lot of you have stories about, like, I can tell you the story about when I was like this. A lot of you are like, that's me right now. That's why I'm here. Like, I tried everything else, and it's so bad. Like, man, I'm like that, and I'm here. Welcome. Like, we're really glad you're here. And what Jesus is declaring is he's the type of shepherd who doesn't sort of passively stand far off and being like, well, man, like 99 out of 100, that ain't too bad, right? He's like, no, 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 like, I leave the 99 to search after the 1 and to restore it back to life. I mean, just think about that image. He says, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And some of you, any of you who are Christians in this room, any of you who want to become Christians in this room, like either your story or what could be your story is this is you awaiting death and Jesus, he comes down and he picks you up and a lot of times you're cooking and fighting against him, like get away from me, I've got this under control. And he's like, you're laying on your back and you're gonna die. He's like, okay, I'm gonna take you up and I'm gonna put you on my shoulders and I'm gonna walk you back to life even if it's with you kicking and screaming against me. What a good shepherd. And he says this, like, he doesn't even take the credit for it, he just throws a party in the wake of it. It says, verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I, uh, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's so interesting, like, let's jump back to Psalm 23. Like, when David, hold all that in your mind again. Like, when David says in verse 4, Like your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now what's interesting is shepherds, that was sort of like the toolkit for shepherds. They had a rod and they had staff. Now the rod was like a club that would be used to fight off enemies to protect the flock from wolves. The staff was more like a shepherd's crook. It's kind of like the stereotypical shepherd's crook and would be used to sort of gently correct the sheep to lead it back on a path towards health or to hold it in place so it could be sheared for the sake of its own health as well. And it's really interesting that David, this guy, who, like, I mean, if you know anything about the life of David, I mean, he was a super, super broken guy. He made all sorts of mistakes. He had an affair. He murdered a guy. And, like, God pursued him. And it's why he says in the wake of that, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You fought off my enemies and protected me. You gently rebuked me and corrected me and led me back to life. And in the wake of all of this, I look back on your shepherding care, and I rejoice that you've taken care of me in such a way. It's really interesting. Like, think about that. Like, you were shepherded by a God who carries both a rod and a staff. And what it means in your life, like, if you are a sheep in his flock, like, here's one of the most practical things, because a lot of times I meet Christians who sort of look at the way their life is, and they sort of assume, like, this isn't the way that I thought it would be, and it's because God punished me. Like, you're almost like trying to go back and be like, okay, what did I do do in order not to get the job that I always dreamt of? And you sort of see God as this cruel taskmaster who's just beating you with the rod over and over again. Don't you see? Like, when you were a sheep and God is your shepherd, he uses the rod exclusively to fight off the woes for the sake of your health and your protection. He doesn't use it to strike blows upon you as his sheep. God is not punishing you because Jesus Christ at the cross took all on all the punishment you deserved for your sin but he carries a staff and that staff corrects us and rebukes us but always for the sake of leading us back to health always for the sake of leading us back to our first love always for the sake of leading us back to our greatest joy a relationship with him and a lot of times it's hard right like sheep are kind of not particularly smart, and so a lot of times it's hard for us to make sense, like, are you punishing me, or like, are you like correcting me towards health? A lot of times we get them mixed up, but this provides a perspective, a, a healthy lens to say, no, like, you never punish me. You rebuke me out of your love in the same way that a father disciplines his children so that they're healthy and thriving. And I would just say this, like some of you are exploring Christianity, some of you are trying to figure out what exactly is it that you believe about God, and I would say, like, to really press into what David says here in verse 4, and understand one of the most practical implications, and really implication is too sterile of a word, one of the most practical privileges, of seeing God as shepherd and you as one of his sheep, that comes through just believing him and repenting of your sin and saying, I'm messy and I shouldn't be autonomous and I shouldn't be independent. I want to surrender and I want to repent. I want to follow and believe you. When you go from sort of being a wild sheep, like whatever that is, to being like a sheep in the flock of God, one of those practical implications is God no longer punishes you but merely corrects you as his child and as his sheep. it's like God really should be feared apart from the finished and the saving work of Jesus. He's very, very just in his character and his nature, and he takes sin very, very seriously. But for those who are his, that sin is paid for at the cross. And punishment dissipates, and love covers a multitude of our errors. What number was that two okay um third god is the shepherd who gives us victory over our greatest enemy he's the shepherd who gives us victory over our greatest enemy look at what david says next in verse four even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me now, here's just sort of a cultural observation you need to understand, is that in this culture, valleys were synonymous with death. If you were a person and you were fighting a battle, you never wanted to be in the valley, you always wanted to be in the high country, because the high country kind of gave you the best position to shoot down or kill other people. And if you were a sheep, you always wanted to be in the high country, not in the valleys, because the valleys were where the predators roam. So whether you were a person or whether you were an animal, the one thing the valley had in common for both of you is that is where people and animals go to die. Really, really scary, scary place. Now, it's really interesting. Look at this in detail. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Probably a really, I mean, if you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard this, this read before. But it's really interesting. I, I hadn't really noticed this until I studied it in detail. Look again. It's interesting what David doesn't say. David doesn't say, you don't make me walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? What does he say? Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And why is he not afraid? For you are with me. And it's interesting, right? Because a lot of times we believe, like, if God's really there, the greatest gift he can give us is a fixing of our circumstances. Like, don't make me walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? I'm stressed about money. Give me more money. And if you don't do that, you don't love me. If I'm stressed about my job, give me a better job. If you don't, you don't love me. You're not even there. David said, like, no, 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 no. Like, the greatest... Comfort in the midst of the greatest trials of life is not uh, a cessation of those trials or circumstances, but rather the established and the permanent presence of the shepherd God who loves us and protects us and will take us through life's greatest fear, even the walk through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> Thanks, PT. <laughs> Man, even the neighbors are getting excited. So... Um, now it's interesting, okay, come back, come back, okay, everybody, everybody focus again, okay, come back. Now what's interesting about this is that Jesus, like the reason we always want to be like, I mean there's a lot of reasons we want to study Jesus, but particularly in terms of making sense of the Old Testament, we read Jesus in the New Testament, and he really kind of sheds light in terms of our ability to understand the Old Testament Fully. It's kind of like what they are anticipating Jesus is revealing to be very, very clear. Now, it's interesting. Like, How, how, can, we, how can we not be afraid? Right? How, like, how can we practically not be afraid in the moment where life is at its most scary, like a walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What's well, interesting, Jesus says this about himself, sort of picking up the shepherd analogy. He says, I am the good shepherd. This is from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what's really interesting about all of this, what Jesus is saying in this moment, you know, we said this last week, right? We said that if you're experiencing a trial, one of the greatest gifts that you can receive is somebody else who's walked through that trial as well. That's why if you've ever been diagnosed with a serious disease or you have somebody in your life who was diagnosed with a really serious disease, the person you want to talk to the most is you can say, yeah, I absolutely know what it's like to have the doctor say, you have this or say, your dad has this. Why is that? Because like, we're deeply, deeply comforted. This is sort of the laws of nature. We're deeply comforted by the people who can empathize. We're deeply comforted by the one who's experienced what we've experienced as well. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is the reason we don't have to be afraid when we walk through humanity's greatest enemy of death, the reason we don't have to be afraid when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death is because we are shepherded by a God who at the cradle declared he is willing to take on that struggle alongside us. And he will not just send rules, he will send his own son. And at the cradle, the lowliest of births, we talked about this last week, he is declaring my trajectory is straight from the cross, and I will die the most terrible death ever. But that's not the final word. Three days later, I will resurrect victorious. And the reason then we can be confident as we walk through the greatest enemy of humanity, the valley of the shadow of death, is because we are shepherded by a God who not only went into that valley, but leveled that valley and conquered that valley and said, I am victorious. And by grace through faith, my victory will be your victory as well. And it's like I still know that, like for some of you, you're like, I want to believe that, right? But like I can't believe that. I'm struggling. I'm fighting to believe that. (laughs) Like, like for a lot of you, you are the sheep who is struggling to lie down and trusting God to the degree that, like, I believe you. (laughs) Like. You perfectly feed and you perfectly comfort and you perfectly take care. And it's just hard, right? You're like that guy in the New Testament who says that Jesus like, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's fine. Like we're, we're fighting together to believe these things together. But like David doesn't stop there. He actually gives a really practical action step for you who, who are struggling to believe. That might be that you're a follower of Jesus and it's hard to believe the goodness of God. It might be that you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, do I want to jump into this thing? Like, do I want to change my life? Do I want to surrender? Do I want to stop being independent and autonomous? So kind of no matter where you stand, whether, no matter like, how you struggle to believe, it's really interesting what David does in conclusion with all this. Look at verse five. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, it's interesting, we all want verse 6, right? We all want some sort of concrete belief that because of who God is and because of his control and love over my life, like, I can believe that, you know, for most of us, like, fill that in for yourself. I don't know, like, I'm pessimistic. Usually it's like, surely death and destruction will follow me all of my life, right? Does anybody else like this or am I just crazy? Um, I don't know. I don't know how you would affirm that. But maybe I'm just crazy. So maybe I'll just be talking to myself here. But I guess there's at least one other who thinks exactly like me. How, how do you believe, like, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? Well, here's what David says. Look at verse 4, or verse 5, sorry. He says, look at the table. Like, my God is the one who repairs the table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it's really interesting, like, when he writes that, it's like, what he is sort of anticipating, like, into the future, we can look back in the past and see very, very clearly. We celebrate it weekly. It's called communion. So where we look at the table where Jesus, like, just before he's betrayed and just before he'll die on the cross to fully take on our mess, just before he'll die to forgive us of our sins, he shares a meal with his friends, the very men that will betray him, and he will still die for anyways. And he breaks bread, and he pours out a cup of wine, and he says, this is my body that will be broken for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. I am the shepherd God who is shepherding his sheep and will lay down his life for the good of the sheep. And every single time, like, we celebrate communion. We celebrate that. So for you, for you who are struggling to believe, whether it's, I don't know, like whether you became a Christian decades ago or whether you're struggling to believe for the very first time tonight, I would challenge you lovingly to do what David says to do and to look to the table to look to the bread that's been broken, to look at the blood that's been shed, and to celebrate and to participate and to ask yourself, if that's my God, like if that's who he's revealed himself to be, if, if it's not a mystery of what he feels about me, like God is mysterious in some ways, but he has very clearly revealed that he is the God who is for us. And we see this clearly through the table that's set for us at communion by what he offered up his son to do. Then we can say concretely, and with the greatest assurance, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you um, for the way you love us. We thank you for the way you revealed for for yourself to be, and uh, I just pray that, um, I don't know, Psalm 23 is familiar. Probably a lot of people in this room, even if they grow up in church, are at least somewhat familiar with it, and I pray that it would become not just familiar, but deeply, deeply personal, and not just deeply personal in some sort of vague way, but a very specific way that we would see clearly who we are and who God is and we would respond rightly to that. That we would, especially for those who are struggling to believe that you are good towards us, that we would look to the table and we would see your son's body broken, his blood poured out, his victory three days later when he resurrects and conquers that death and we would be able to say, that's what you feel towards me. That's what you've offered me. That's what I'm responding to. That's what I want to give my entire life towards. And so I pray that we would respond appropriately. We just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus who makes all this possible. Amen.